I'm David Heitler Clevens. And I'm Rodney Wittenberg. And this is Music for the New Revolution. All right. So we are here in the Music for the New Revolution studio with Tom Nielsen from Greenfield, Massachusetts, Western Mass. And we're very excited to have him here in town to be able to do this in-person interview. Well, thank you, David. It's glad to be here. And I've known Tom for quite a while, from mainly through the People's Music Network, and I've always enjoyed his songwriting and his singing, and it's great to have a conversation here about where that all came from. Why don't we start off, Tom, with how you kind of got involved in doing the kind of music for social change, social justice that you do? Well, my origins are upstate New York dairy farm. I had a mom, I still do, she's 98 years old, who was a musician. She directed choirs, she was church organist, she acted in community theater, and I was performing at the age of three. Uh, And I just always was singing, always, always, always. I started writing when I got to college and just started writing about anything that was going down. And I uh, left the country to avoid the Vietnam War in 1970 because I figured I had more in common with Vietnamese farmers and the Wall Street brokers who wanted to pay me to go shoot them. And for the next 20 years, most of those years were in in other places, in Africa, West and East Africa, and South America and Central America, traveled through Asia, worked in Europe for a bit. And with respect to my undergrad school, leaving the country was, in many ways, the start of my education. I was a history major and I thought I knew a lot about the world and I was in Colombia for a week and realized I knew very, very little. The world then began to teach me. And that was the exciting piece was with all the travels was just learning so, so much and learning with with the languages. And um, it wasn't the same as what was in the history books for the most part, Not, not in the 60s, not with what we were reading. And so that was where my start was. My first professional gigs were at a funeral home in northern Idaho, in Lewiston, Idaho. I got $35 to sing two songs. I thought that was a lot. (laughs) And then I didn't... I always played, I always wrote music, but not professionally until I came back from Nicaragua in 86 and was encouraged by some friends in my doctor program to begin recording and playing out. And uh, I thought, well, who would ever buy my music? Or, you know, who would ever pay to hear me sing? And I don't know, 16, 17 CDs later, here I am with you at the microphones. You know, and I'm a storyteller. My, my shows are very autobiographical. And it starts, they start with, from, you know, with a farm song from where I grew up. Well, I'd love to hear the farm song you just mentioned. All right, well, growing up, Everybody milked cows. It was a little farm community in upstate New York. We had more cows than people. We had a three-generation home, and a number of homes were that way. We had an old barn, didn't have a nail in it. It was all mortise and tenon. You hear the word kibos in here. A kibos is what farmers would call to bring the cows down. And all the dogs would go up in the hills and bring them down. Four o'clock in the afternoon, the border collies call. 
Martin's on his John Deere, Jimmy's yelling his kibosh. Barn doors open up for Holsteins, each one knows her place. Catch a tail with dry manure, whisk across your face. Catch a tail with dry manure, whisk across your face. Music on the radio plays a country tune. And rhythm with the milking machines and sweeping with a broom. <clears throat> we put in hay till midnight so we could beat the rain. This farm is family, don't know no other name. This farm is family, don't know no other name. They brought the bulk tank and the corporation truck. And one by one, the creameries in all the towns dried up. The GLF, SO station, and the general store, and the DNH, all in freight don't stop here anymore. The DNH, all in freight don't stop here anymore. I watch our fields go to four lane highways and mobile homes. The kids don't see no future and they're gone before they're grown. Can't imagine what the cost, how to measure what we've lost. When our fields go to four lane highways and mobile homes, go to four lane highways. Swimming holy lovers lane Where we used to go To take a dip for hanging out Or to watch a campfire glow It's posted signs in our face Don't these people know How to live in a place And not shut off the flow Don't let our fields go To four-lane highways And mobile homes Parking lots and fast food spots and another banker's loan. Can't imagine what the cost, how to measure what we've lost. When our fields go to four-lane highways, mobile homes go to four-lane highways and mobile homes. Late shift at the factory can run a farmer down With milking cows and growing crops is full time all around Working hard to build a home is what these farming folk have known Do you find them in the sand hills, cemetery ground? Do we find them in the sand hills, cemetery ground? Don't let our fields go to four-lane highways and mobile homes. Shopping malls, can we stop the wall from taking what we own? Can't imagine what the cost, how to measure what we've lost. When our fields go to four-lane highways and mobile homes, go to four-lane highways and mobile homes. Beautiful song.
I like the uh, the progression of it, like from the you know the way that the chorus changes from just a statement to more of a you know a resistance. Yeah, um, yeah. My grandfather. Uh, every every we all had to get jobs off the farm, cause it was pretty subsistence. We there wasn't a lot of stash of money, and we were always in debt. Farmers just lived in debt. And so first the men got jobs off the farm, then women got jobs off the farm. My grandfather worked at the factory down the road from 11 at night to 7 in the morning, then came home and did the farm work. And I always wondered when that man slept, and he was dead at 54. Um, it's a 24-7 job. So you didn't decide to uh, stay with that life Oh, uh, no, we lost our farm in the 50s. Okay. My roots are very strong in that farm community, but that was not going to be who I was in terms of what I did with the rest of my life, and we all knew that. I could have easily gone into the military. You know, I was whatever the word patriot means, but I had bought the whole, you know, Audie Murphy message and Dragnet and all the anti-commie stuff. I mean... We hid under our desks in kindergarten. I don't know if you still did that when you came along in school. No. But we were learning to be obedient, do what we were told. We were learning to be afraid. In high school, it was duck and covers. Right. And if you didn't do duck and covers, you got in trouble because you were endangering everybody else. And, uh, you know, we, st we, we st are still scared. I mean, I mean, if you listen to the news when you read between the lines or listen between the lines... That's one of the muses for me to write my stuff because the first time I came back from living outside the States and realizing that the news was not how I had experienced wherever I had been. And the more I traveled, the more I saw how the news was fabricated. And, you know, and, and when I worked with the United Nations in Somalia, one day I got this cable from Geneva reprimanding me for not sending a report, which I had given to my superior. And he told me he didn't send it. And when I asked him why, he said, it was, well, you told the truth. You can't tell the truth about what's going on here. And he, he added, look, I did you a favor. If I had sent that, you'd have never had a job with the UN. So you've traveled all over the world and met so many different types of people. How has that changed your worldview or shaped who you are as an artist or songwriter? In every way. I breathed the same air as everyone else where I grew up, and that was an air of entitlement that I didn't see as entitlement, of, of white supremacy, although I would never have looked at myself as a white supremacy because my teachings were very strong of equality from my mom, and, and there were very specific situations growing up where she clearly taught me about segregation and that we were all equal and no one was better than anyone else. But I didn't understand whiteness. I didn't understand what it meant to be a male. Men don't have to. You know, white people don't have to because... That's privilege. That's, that's privilege, yeah. right. Yeah. But leaving the States, because again, in the community I grew up with, it was all white. And um, leaving the States was... Suddenly it was in my face. And looking at how pigmentation stratified Colombian society and realized, hey, that's the United States. So you're saying, uh, just to clarify that, when you, so when you're in Colombia, you're saying that the, the I guess, the more Spanish-looking Colombians had uh, uh, were considered better than the 
uh, indigenous people? There, you have the European people who will talk about their European ancestry and their whiteness, and, and definitely with every much bit of entitlement, as you will hear some white people talk about it here. And then there are the degrees of coloration in the skin with all the genetic mixing of coloration that is in our, you know, in our makeups and to where the skin gets darker and darker and darker and darker and then and you have your indigenous populations and then you have your black community that originated from the slave ships that either they mutinied and took them over or they crashed and along the coast in the Choco area and in the coast of Ecuador and in Peru, you have these black communities. And so with all the mixing, there's definitely white is right, white is pretty. Yeah, you know, my, my landlady, you know, when I would be out in my garden and if I didn't have my shirt on, she would say, Tomas, you have such nice white skin. You don't want to darken it. And I, I found that in, in among the, the Chocoano populations and even among the, the darker skin friends that I had, sometimes it was, you know, they would identify themselves as being, you know, that lighter was prettier. And so that's the insipidness of, you know, the, the, the legacy of enslavement, you know, and what it does to everyone's mind. You know, it's not to say I wouldn't have dealt with it at some point in my life, Leaving the country and being in the midst of it and watching how other people were moving through it helped me think, you know, look at where we are in the States. And, and going to Florida with my mom when I was eight years old and for the first time seeing all these, you know, black people can't go here. And they weren't, it wasn't called black people, you know, coloreds here or and that was the first time I ever really heard the word. And my mom told me, you don't use that word. It's not a nice word, and you don't use it, and that's all we really have to say about it. And she explained segregation and that it's not right, it's wrong, and that's all I needed to know. And, and that's, that was for my 8-year-old understanding of that. But there were other things that happened a- along the way as a child that still were imprinted, you know, that, and my mom was always very reinforcing with those inherent values of equality that do- doesn't matter if someone has a lot of money that are not better than you and whatever you believe in with religion. She says the stupidest wars are the ones over what someone's God is. And so I, that was that was firmly implanted. But I think it's a life struggle to understand how it all plays out. You know, it's not like I ever get it because I, I, that was rude. It was implanted, and then it was now it's my job for the rest of my life to see how it all plays out in the different situations. So maybe you could share one of your songs about how you uh, worked on uh, processing that or particularly around songs that deal with race and... and uh, I, have a, I have a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> there's one, there's sometimes people ask me, what's the impetus to, to write a song? And I say, well, a lot of it is, you know, hypocrisy or a lie or absurdity or or anger or sometimes when it's at a point where I can't not mm-hmm. write the song I don't care what it sounds like and you know the violence in this country I don't I don't need to say anything about that because we all I hope anyone listening to this show is aware of 
the repeated violence in this country. And one of the things we often hear is it was mistaken identity. Whoops, that's okay, because I thought it was someone else. Gee, I wouldn't have done it if I'd known, if I'd been paying attention. So I have, I have you know, some different songs, but one of them that I, I just sat down and it just flowed out when I was, when I heard about it. And this is two or three things that happened at the same time with black people getting shot and in Bakersfield, the, the Bakersfield police said it was a mistaken identity. And when you hear the song as to who they mistook one for the other. It was the kind of mistake any cop could make looking for adult black male. 30 years old, about six feet tall or anything to scale. So a teen would do, five feet two, draw down on her and check ID. Bakersfield police said it's just a case of mistaken identity. His head was bald and hers in a braid, and he wore a goatee. While she was clean shaven and riding her bike, Mistaken identity She was in shorts He was wearing gray pants or blue jeans And carrying a 12-inch blade But close enough cause the skin he was in Was a similar shade Attacked by police at the point of a gun Punched in the mouth maybe just for fun Punctured bites from a canine dog She was charged with assault in the police log She said he grabbed her wrist, then he grabbed her neck Then he threw her to the ground Put his knee in her back, pushed her head in the pavement And handcuffed, she was bound Tied her feet together, threw her in the car Cuts and bruises on her head Good thing she wasn't home wearing pajamas They might have shot her dead She was armed with a personal weapon Her hands, her feet and teeth So a canine was chewing on her leg While her head was underneath the knee of a cop, so they charged her with a felony. How can you be safe in the street and home with mistaken identity? How can you be safe in the street and home with mistaken identity? It's a powerful song. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about that. Like, I think you, you said this another time that, that, you know, that is a kind of satire, but obviously not the funny kind. You know? Yeah, <laughs> the irony of yeah. it, you know, bald head and braided child, right. you know, six feet tall, five feet two. Definitely points out the, the craziness of that. Yeah. Well, you know, um, you were mentioning before about uh, the duck and cover time and how people were you know, in this very fearful state in schools. And we have a different but similar kind of thing happening today where kids have to go through 
drills about shootings, you know, where they have to, to hide in their classrooms and their schools related to that kind of an issue. So it's, I know it's different, but there's, there's a sort of a similarity. And I was thinking of your song about Betsy DeVos, of yeah. a different kind of, of uh, satire, which is more of a funny one. You know, the point behind that is this country lives in a state of fear. Mm-hmm. I mean, from when we were children, that fear was instilled. I remember when I was 12, there was that craze to build an air raid, a fallout shelter. Right. And you go to the county fair and they've got a sample of a fallout shelter and all the cans of food and the games and everything that were in it. And I can remember being 12 years old, looking outside, you know, and asking my mom, where are we going to put our fallout shelter? She said, I don't think we need to do that. You know? <laughs> but it just gets implanted and we have this knee-jerk reaction and then we look to the very authorities who are instilling that fear in us to protect us. You know, and I'll get to that Betsy DeVos song, but one of the things that is certainly an initiate for me is the media and how the media reports mm. the news. The manufacture of fear. Yeah. So good old Betsy. Now, Betsy DeVos is a very special person. She, uh, she must be, you know, to be Secretary of Education. And she's, <laughs> you know, and, and she's very creative. She thinks of things, well, you know, it's, you know, like with the Bears, during her Senate hearing, her confirmation hearing, she's ex- explained very clearly why you need guns in the schools, and that's to protect the kids in Wyoming from grizzly bears. And see, I'd, I'd have never thought of that. That's why I'm not an education secretary. I'm just here playing guitar and singing about her. But we'd because, rather have you as an <laughs> education secretary. Yeah, but, <laughs> but see, my job is to give, is to recognize the people who merit recognition. This is a song about the nomination Of Betsy, a Blackwater affiliation Known for anomalous communication With no credentials in our estimation Intellectual asphyxiation Someone to privatize our education Make it Christian and private and white because a bigoted billionaire, Betsy DeVos. A life that is misery for every grizzly, cause now there are guns in the schools. Every kid will be packing a weapon for whacking a bear, not following rules. And what can a bear do now? We got an air do. Boss, what? 
what will the bears do now? She is the boss. Without diversity, we're at a loss. It's bigoted billionaire Betsy DeVos. And now the answer to bear education is shoot them while they're sleeping in hibernation. Lure them with food, catch them in snares, shoot them while tracking from planes in the air. But we got Berkeley and UCLA, Bowdoin and Maine, Oakland in the bay. What will the bears do now? She is the boss. Without diversity, we're at a loss. It's bigoted billionaire Betsy the boss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so clever. Yes. I love the diversity. Oh, thank <laughs> you. So, Tom, do you ever feel you have to be brave to walk out on a stage and play songs like that? Do you ever run into difficult audiences? Or, you know, one of the reasons we started this podcast was to give people a platform to play songs like that without fear of uh, repercussion or or reprisal. <laughs> well, the the overall, the macro repercussion is that people don't book me because I have such a wide variety of issues that I address I'm bound to step on someone's toes. Um, free and equal elections is a deal breaker. Palestine is a deal breaker. Those are the main two. Some people don't like to hear Hillary's name. Some people don't like to hear Obama's name. Mm-hmm. Actually, the, the one time when I was a little nervous, Lynn had to, literally took the glass of wine out of my hand because she said, you have a show to do. And that was about five minutes, ten minutes before I went on stage because I was wondering, what am I going to play? Even though I had a list of songs, because this was a, a full house of what were described to me as millionaire Republicans, and some identified as Tea Party people. And I was tipsy for the first two. It's a good thing Lynn took the wine when she did. <laughs> and I went out and I opened with Corporations Are Human, and they loved it. They were really angry at the bailouts because they said this was all predatory, this was all done with intent. These people should have gone to jail. They were furious at the president for bankrolling them. This was all planned. And so, and they were really incensed. And pretty much the whole house is what I got with my talks with people about the immorality of it. Next, I did the farm song, and there were two now adults, certainly, but we grew up together as kids, two different farm kids that were in that room. And one of them was the son of Martin, who had a stroke in his barn, and he died in his barn. And I got a letter from my mom, and I was thinking about it, and I pulled the truck over by the Mill River in Montague, and I wrote that song back then. And and both of them, they had never heard it. They loved it. And so that's a way with connecting with two people who otherwise think very differently in many ways about the world, but He's got tears in his eyes over a song I wrote that his father initiated, and we can talk. And that, and that ability to talk is because there, somewhere there's a trust develops. And the conversations that I had and that Lynn had through the course of that evening were all people really genuinely asking why I think the way 
I do, because they all respected the experience. They all respected that where I was singing from, the, what I, the stories I was telling were coming from my life experience. And we all have our life experiences that make up what we feel is true. And they were willing to listen to that. And they shared their thoughts and their fears and that. And, and that, to me, is the most exciting piece of what I do. When I, when I play for environment groups, I wonder sometimes, because when some their incinerator or, or some waste or, or, or coal ash deposit or what have you coming in and taking over a community, it brings together everyone in that community, people who never probably have anything to do with each other, but now they're trying to save their community. And they pick vulnerable communities. They pick communities that they think will not resist them. And we've experienced this at home with the pipeline and, and, uh, and the biomass incinerator they tried to put in. And I almost always write songs for these folks. And to be at the table or to be at the show and, and to link everything together, the first time I think I thought, wow, should there be songs I don't do? And I say, no, this is the opportunity to show how what they are all here together for connects with all the other things that are important to me and should be, and are important to them, but it's a matter of understanding and seeing the connections. And so I just try and craft the show to show how this leads into this and this is connected to this. But the most important thing in the beginning is to get an audience's trust. Mm -hmm. And that I, I try and do it just by, this is where I come from. Mm -hmm. And a little humor. And then when I talk about why, at this point, to talk about leaving the country during Vietnam doesn't push as many buttons sure. as it did 50 years ago. Right. But they, you know, and it's like Tom Paxton I, I met long, long ago, and, and I hadn't really started yet professionally, and he was talking with me about it. And, you know, one of the things he said I already knew, because my mom always had told me that, that, but Tom said it again. He said, the audience is your friend. And you respect the audience, and the audience respects you. And it's, so it's how you craft that set that you're going to do and I guess the the balancing act is to say what I want to say without compromising what I want to say you know it sounds like your job as a songwriter is to tell your truth yeah I mean absolutely Mar one of my favorite quotes from Martha Beck is to be an artist is to tell the truth and if you compromise that truth to get into small talk or to be liked by someone for not telling your truth then you've lost the artist in you you know, and Pablo Casal, when he was in exile in France, said that we have an obligation as artists, whatever the genre, to sing out for social justice because we have a medium that will be listened to when maybe the editorial won't. I mean, we could go on and quote many people throughout history who have made, if you will, a black and white determination as to how you proceed with your art. Now, would I love to see all artists doing social justice work? Of course. But this is not to say if one doesn't that it's wrong or that they're a bad person or something. It's we all do what we are able to do. I've had people tell me that they won't do what I do because they want to be liked. And they don't. They want to maximize their marketability. And so they say they won't. I've had some people say they don't know how to. I've had people in the music industry, higher up than what I am, Tell me not to name names. You don't, you want to be liked. If, if you want to be a success in this business, you need to be liked. And if you name names, you're not going to be liked. And I said, well, how will, how will people know who I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And I've experienced this my whole life. I get people all the time say, I don't want them to know who I am. And I said, well, then you're doing exactly what they want you. I don't want to be visible. Mm -hmm. And so they don't want to have wear a shirt or have a bumper sticker or have their name on something. And I says, well, they've got you. That's exactly how they want you to be. They want you to be afraid. Mm -hmm. They want you not to speak out. Then they've succeeded. And people often don't like to hear that, but that's, you know, that's the truth. The civil rights movement didn't happen because people didn't say, I'm not going to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge because I don't want them to know who I am. Right. You know, and uh, a, lot, a lot of people got their heads cracked taking a stand so that you could take a stand. Right. You know, so I, you know, I understand, I mean, the, the whole fear thing and people still hiding under their desks, but we've got, we've got to come out. It's not about reform. We need a makeover. You know, we do need a revolution. And, you know, I speak from my position in the shoes I'm in. You know, other people have experienced perhaps that make it very difficult for them to be visible. And, and that's okay, but I, I, I can only say what people tell me and, and, and relate the fears that they have. And, and, and that's pretty much how I respond to them when they say they want to be invisible. There is, well, you know, this is like a different, this is another part of my life, actually, right here. When I went to Nicaragua in 85 as an interpreter and pair of hands to build this school, I uh, found a book of poems by Claudio Alegria, a Salvadoran poet. And one of them was called La Mujer del Rio Sumpu. It was very graphic, the imagery, and it was, and... So I adapted, I translated a small piece of it and wrote this song. I wrote it in 1985 and kind of put it away. And then when Obama and Hillary overthrew the Zelaya government in 09, in June of 09, it brought the death squads into Honduras with Hernandez. And then in the election they had a year ago, Hernandez, by all pretty much estimations, rigged the vote again and is still in power and the death squads are still operating. And what happens is that's, that's the core. I mean, if we look in the 80s in the sanctuary movement, where these people are coming from, they're coming from El Salvador, they're coming from Guatemala. And then the Contra War when the U.S. invades Nicaragua with mercenary army to overthrow the government that kicked out Somoza. And then Berta Cáceres was assassinated. And she was very outspoken about the U.S. overthrowing Zelaya. And she won the Goldman Environment Prize in, in March of 2016. And I think about two weeks later, she was murdered. And Nelson Garcia, the following week, was murdered. And it just it's, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds into the thousands of people who have been murdered. And so I brought the song back. And it's called La Mujer del Rio Sumpul, Woman of Sumpul River. Now, there was a massacre at Sumpul River back in the 80s that didn't get reported, like a lot of them didn't get reported. Come with me, let us climb the volcano. Break through the fog, history is bubbling there. Murasani Marti and all you brave people Gambling with death for our freedom 
We tried to get away, it was the 14th of May My man taken away with his thumbs tied I wept for him in my silence My youngest son in my arms When the soldiers came I played dead Afraid my baby would cry I was hiding in the river for a long time My wet body is the earth Wounded Mother Earth Oozing tenderness From a gaping wound The soldiers do not see me Or the gringo who counts the dead Nor the Yankee pilot in his gunship overhead They cannot see the Gadiettos Disguised as ancient sentinels With the woman of Sumpool Let us climb the volcano Break through the fog History is bubbling there Morasani Marti and all you brave people Gambling with death For our And, you know, the, the thing you were starting to talk about, I think, uh, with the situation in Honduras, the connection also is that that's really the root cause for this caravan or a lot of the people in the yeah. caravan. And so many Americans, North Americans, don't, you know, recognize that as a cause. They don't, they don't know that. They don't see that. And they're missing that vital piece. Yeah. Well, and, and how the press relates it. You know, even if Trump calls it an invasion, doesn't mean the press has to call it an invasion. Right or an attack, or however you want to describe it, people in this country believe what they hear mm -hmm. in the mainstream media. And for lack of a better word, I'm, I'm alternative, you know, if we look at alternative media, alternative news sources, you know, and when I came back from Nicaragua, the Contras invaded the group I was with twice, that mm -hmm. little village. And when I came back and told the newspaper reporters of the local papers, they said it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And... I said, how can you say it didn't happen? They said, well, if it had happened, it would have been on the AP line. Because <laughs> everything, UPI, API, this is 30 years ago. Right. And you're saying, but I was there. Oh, and okay. <laughs> we had a press conference in Managua, and every news source, Asian, African, North American, so, well, South American, I mean, Australian, is there, but not the U.S., ABC, CBS, NBC, The Washington Post, New York Times, UPI, AP, not there. So it didn't get reported. Right. And um, talking about Somalia is just a, another show. But what people don't get and what we don't get with news is all of the wars and the manipulation of these countries f to control resources, to control food, well, when you were mentioning about the, the media, that, that made me think of, I remember a study during the time of the, the Contra War that showed, you know, depending on what information people had, they had a totally different 
perspective on what was going on. It was all about the information, you know. So if, if people knew who the Sandinistas really were, who the Contras really were, they had one attitude. And if they were believing what the news was aping from Reagan, you know, then they they just believed the lies, basically. It's so, it's so interesting listening to your stories as someone who, you know, left the country so you didn't have to serve in the military. It's almost like you are a uh, warrior for peace. You are a soldier in this 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 battle that just keeps waging on, and it's almost like your job is as a reporter for in in that war that's going on. Well, thank you because one of one of the things I I say is that I I am a journalist. You have photojournalism, and you have musical journalism in the grand tradition of woody and mm-hmm. yeah. phil oaks and all the news that's fit to sing yeah well <laughs> my my friend dio who's a poet back in the 80s we used to do shows together and we were called he came up with the handle bard insurgents <laughs> from the historically the bards who went mm-hmm. from town to town telling the news or singing the news yeah. and yeah we were the bard insurgents mm-hmm. well speaking of uh like media, but maybe getting us into a, a little bit of a more humorous song, since we might need that at this point. I was thinking of your one about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable to show of women's bodies. Would you be willing to do that one? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, absolutely. Since we're in uh, Pennsylvania, it's only appropriate that we sing a song about Texas. Down in Austin, Texas, Ashley went to shop for some sexy lingerie. Victoria's was her stop when her baby started crying to get a little snack. Victoria told her, go out to the alley in the back. Breasts are there to ago, breasts are there to fondle, breasts are there to sell the merchandise. Symbol of sexual status, aphrodisiac apparatus. Breasts are just a marketing device. A breast cannot be showing if mama's milk is flowing. You be asked to leave the store. What a breast is really for Get a push-up or a demi Passion pink and satin heat But there isn't any product For a baby on your teeth Purple drama, bright hibiscus Being sexy is their business But not when a baby has to eat They have lingerie for naughty They have lingerie for nice Lingerie for every cleavage at a titillating price They have padding to be adding hot pink and leopard skin But a baby on a nipple isn't foxy feminine A breast cannot be showing if mama's milk is flowing You be asked to leave the store The right to nurse foregoing Cause Victoria's drinking doing Her secret for what a breast is really for 
Victoria sells undies, bras, and sexy tees. Her signature seduction lingerie. Get it lacy, get it racy, oh, get it in your facey, but a baby, well, it just gets in the way. Her breast cannot be showing, and mama's milk is flowing. You be asked to leave the store, the right to nurse foregoing, cause Victoria's drinking doing her secret, what a breast is really for. The right to nurse foregoing, cause Victoria's drinking doing her secret, what a breast is really for. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Very good. Thank you. You're helping us keep abreast of these issues. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. David, why'd you have to milk that? Uh, well, if it wasn't for bad humor, we wouldn't have no humor at all, oh. right, Rodney? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I think this feels like a, a good place to uh, end our interview. Uh, Tom, do you have anything you'd like to say in closing uh, to our listeners out there? Well, thank you all for everything that you're doing. You know, people don't have to do everything. People just have to do one thing. You know, whatever one is comfortable with doing. And, and I always encourage people to try and get outside their comfort zone, you know, and see how it feels. You know, keep on working, keep on seeking truth, and thank both of you for getting us all together today. It's our pleasure. Thank you yeah. for joining us. You know, and if, if anybody wants to... Wants a show, let us know. <laughs> How can people find you on the interwebs? TomNielsenMusic.com. Nielsen is N-E-I-L-S-O-N. You've been listening to Music for the New Revolution. I'm Rodney Wittenberg. I'm David Heitler-Clevins. Music for the New Revolution is produced at Melody Vision Recording Studios in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. Music for the New Revolution is written and produced by David Heitler-Clevins and Rodney Wittenberg. And edited and co-produced by Ben Flax. You can find us at musicforthenewrevolution.com or MFTNR. Like us on Facebook and follow our Spotify playlist. And our podcasts can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. And you can also be a patron, a supporter of our podcast on Patreon. This is Music for the New Revolution. Spend it all today and we will bill you tomorrow. Three-piece suits and bank accounts in Bahamas. Wall Street crime will never send you to the slammer. Tell all the children in the arms of the mamas. The F-15 is a homicide for a pop of pill culture, drug companies circling like a vulture.